So before we get started, we are looking to run a design and engineering contest or actually multiple contests in 2024. If you have an idea for a challenge or want to sponsor the contest, drop us a line at podcast at macfab.com. Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and component aging effects. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 411. Circuit Break from Macrofab. Our guest this week is James Lewis, a.k.a. Bald Engineer, freelance electronics content creator. You might recognize James from the YouTube channels Ad Ohms and Workbench Wednesdays from Element 14. His interests include talking too much about capacitors, repairing vintage computers, and making unique PCBs that go into poorly designed 3D printed enclosures. James has been on the show a few times now, including episodes 141 and 222, to discuss testing and validating PCB assembly design. The episode about ceramic capacitors is still one of Parker's all-time favorite episodes. And that's when we also found out he likes to talk about capacitors a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Did I only talk about ceramics in that episode? for an hour, entire hour. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I I still remember... You asked us a question about how long it takes for to to make a ceramic capacitor. And I yes, asked people yeah. at work about that. And what's funny is they gave all kinds of varieties of answers to that. So yeah, that one that one stuck with me. I think two weeks was the answer. Yeah, it's it's between two and four weeks, depending on the process. I got uh, I got upwards of six months from some people. Well, you have to do plant them and let it grow. Just bake them well, for I- six months. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess if you start with mining the minerals, it could take six months. But yeah, uh, thank you so much, James, for coming back on the podcast. Uh, it's been quite a while. It has. It's. It's. I'm really glad to get a chance to talk to you guys again. Yeah, it's been a, an entire... It, the last time you were on the podcast was in the before times. That is so weird to think <laughs> about, but you're right. Yeah, back at episode 222. So anyways, what's the topic this week, Stephen? So I've been wanting to talk about component aging effects. A lot of that is driven by the work that I'm currently doing where I'm actually in charge of researching component aging effects. And in the research I've been doing to try to become intelligent about this, I've noticed a very wide variety of opinions and ideas about component aging. And uh, we were we were mentioning it, uh, gosh, a few handful of weeks ago and and realized that James Lewis has some information about that through, I think it was through our discourse is, is how we came about that. So we we said we have to get James on here to at least talk about it. And, and, and in particular, we're going to talk about capacitors, right? Probably only because that's the, the best context that I have. You know, I, I, I just want to say up front, I'm not a reliability engineer. And so a lot of the knowledge I have comes from working with reliability engineers or talking to customers about why things in their products fail due to aging. So I just wanted to say that up front that I'm not. But you stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. But I did watch some YouTube videos, so we should be good. So you're armed and ready to go. You bet. He's got he's got chat GPT open in the other window right there. Let me first start by asking you this, James. In, in the research I've done, uh, figuring out component aging, I've learned 
or at least it feels like everyone has their own thoughts on how it happens, but no one is completely sure about how to approach component aging. So that's an interesting question to start with because I think there's a mixed answer. So first we have to realize all components age differently. And even within components, they're going to age different based on their material set and how they're built. So for example, you know, we can't just say aging of a diode is going to be the same as a CPU, even though they fundamentally have the same types of materials in them, they're typically built somewhat different, right? The epoxy material might give out, might uh, degrade sooner, which exposes the bond wires, blah, blah, blah. With capacitors, and this is where I think I was headed in our discussion on the discourse, is within capacitors, the material sets completely change the aging effects of the different components. So coming back to your question of do people have different opinions? I think the depending on what you consider aging, the opinions can vary. But we do know that materials change over time. And so how that change manifests itself into a final product is probably where the opinions come. That's where I think we should start is why, as a designer of a product, why should you pay attention to aging or when does it start to affect you? One day after the warranty expires. <laughs> I was about to say immediately, right? <laughs> well, I was trying to give some variance for time zones. <laughs> well, I think that's a that's a really good question. I'm going to, well, okay. So before we started recording, Stephen said something and it kind of caught me off guard, but I think I think we should talk about this. So what's the difference between aging and reliability? The reason I bring this question up is because, you know, reliability is how probable it is something will fail within a certain time frame. And I think we have to remember that everything fails eventually, right? Now, with is it within our lifetime, a cosmic lifetime? Is it seconds? Doesn't matter. Everything fails eventually. Entropy always wins. It's the one rule of everything. Yeah. And so, okay, so if, if that's the case then as a designer, we have to worry about how will aging affect the reliability over the expected application timeframe, right? When you guys buy something at the store, how long do you expect it to last? Uh, depends on the, the price uh, tag. The expiration date. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the expiration date or the best buy date? <laughs> yeah, it, it depends on the, for me, it's the price point. But going off what Steven says, okay. more expensive milk should last longer. Probably not, though. Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to go with no on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or I mean, it also, so it doesn't even have to come down to price. We can't, we, we can't really think about things only in terms of consumer stuff, right? Because, you know, there, there's this whole segment of component in engineering of industrial reliability or high reliability, um, the phrase I'm thinking of, high reliability applications, right? And so while we might think, well, we want our mobile phone to last for three or four years, in high, high rail applications, you know, anything that lasts less than a decade is considered useless, mm. right? And in those applications, they typically expect it will work until this date, right? They're not okay with that things get slow or don't work as well as something gets older. So reliability is the probability that something will fail within a lifetime, or at least that's how I'm going to define it for this discussion. Aging is how something changes over time, right? And so that's how something ultimately fails. It, it chemi well, generally chemically changes over time. And so why do we care about aging effects? Well, number one is it's going to change the performance of whatever circuit we're building or device. 
And number two is it will affect how long that the device is operational. Was it the, uh, like the bathtub curve uh, failures? You either have really early failures and you have really late failures. So aging would usually fall into the, the late of that reliability curve. So if, okay, and this is now, this is where my definitions get fuzzy. If, okay, so the, the beginning is early life failures, the end is wear out. And so aging affects how long until we get to wear out. And so generally what's pretty well defined is as something starts to wear out, we, we can generally define pretty well how, how quickly it will fail after that. And then we can generally determine how long it will take to get to that point. And so the, the goal of most designers is to be in that middle spot, the actual, like the bottom of the tub of the bathtub plot, which is long-term operational life. We want our thing to operate for this long. And then as we start to get to the end, then that's when that wear out mechanism or that wear out time is not always well-defined because what happens is you get to the end of the, the, the useful life. And then that's where things start to get fuzzy because sometimes some, some components last longer than they should have. Right. And so you end up with kind of a fuzzy end, which is why the curve goes like down flat and then back up. Well, and component aging doesn't necessarily lead to unreliability of your, your product. Uh, component aging is the shifts of parameters due to, well, a lot of different factors, but what I've noticed is basically it's every parameter that you have can be defined versus time. So if time is an input to an equation for a parameter that you think is fixed, it is not fixed. And with enough time, something may happen to that parameter. And sort of back to what I was talking about earlier, that my initial question of, you know, opinions, the the inputs to those equations other than time are where the where everything kind of gets a little bit fuzzy. Because you you had mentioned these are these are more along the lines of chemical reactions inside of the components mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, any other kind of reaction. And so the fuzziness comes into uh, what kind of inputs are you choosing in order to estimate a an aging effect? Yeah, yeah, that's actually, uh, you made two really good points I think we should talk about. So let me back up to something earlier in what you just said. So aging, not all aging equates to failure. Right. Because like, uh, so capacitors, resistors, two really good examples, their values will drift over time and you might define a parametric fail, but it doesn't necessarily mean that as those age, they become an open or a short. It's just that their value shifted. And so, you know, back to that initial question, why should you care? Well, if something drifts over time, you should care because that's going to affect the overall reliability or usability of your product, even if the component doesn't literally fail. And so that's a, you know, that, that's a good point because that leads into your second, which is it's all time-based, right? And I, I like how you put that because I hadn't thought about that when you first asked the question about opinions. But when I think about all the examples I have of equations to calculate how long something will last or be operational, it's almost impossible to find concrete evidence to why different coefficients are being used. Like... You know, in the, uh, was it the Arrhenius mm -hmm. equation? There's Boltzmann's constant. And that's about the only thing you can say, <laughs> okay, well, I know yeah, what that's this the only thing is. you can hang your hat on. And right? nobody, right, right. There's, there's no argument that and time, right? You, those are the two things everyone can agree that, yeah, that's the same. So I mentioned this in the, in the forum. So I made this comment and I, I picked it purposely about tantalum polymer. 
So everyone is afraid of using Talon capacitors because they have this weird mode where they explode when they fail. <laughs> yeah, I, I um, picked them because I, I, of that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually thought about making a little board that says like the year. So like now would be 2024. And then on, on New Year's Eve, design a circuit to drive it to blow them all up like fireworks. Um, Wear those, make the board like glasses and have it just blow up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Steven, I love the idea, but I like my eyes way too much to do that. I mean, I no, wait, actually real quick, out of, out of curiosity, I've never seen a, a, a polymer tantalum explode. How, how violent is it? Is it pretty spectacular? So trick question, trick point, tantalum polymers are almost impossible to make explode. Traditional tantalums that are manganese dioxide, which are the ones that are relatively cheap and the most still currently, I think, still the most used, those explode and they explode spectacularly. They will take out a chunk of the board if the uh, if the anode is big enough. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's almost like craters. The PCB. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, it, there was. I, I joked one time because it was like somebody said, well, can you prove how, how, how can you prove that the tantalum caused the explosion? I'm like, well, I can't because it's gone. <laughs> Leave I no mean, trace. There, yeah, there's zero evidence. Right. You know, prove to me there was a capacitor there because, you know, I don't see any silk. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I make this point. I only wanted to kind of to nail that point because tantalum polymer replaces manganese doc, the manganese manganese dioxide with a polymer material and the polymer material robs the chemical reaction of oxygen so that it's not capable of exploding. The reason that traditional tantalums explode is that when the dielectric starts to break down, free form oxygen gets released. And so you have a bunch of heat around oxygen, you get an explosion. Uh, tantalum polymers, when they, when the polymer material actually oxidizes, its resistance goes up. And so while you might say, well, if the resistance goes up, then the heat will go up, except then the current goes down. And so you can't, you never get this explosion. There's no exothermic reaction. There's They're no runaway. Self-limiting. No runaway. Yeah. Now that said, they will burn, right? You put a hundred amps through anything and it, it will burn up, but it won't explode. Now that said, the reason I love this example is because if you use the Arrhenius Arrhenius, Arrhenius, Arrhenius. Uh, I've I, always pronounced it I know Arrhenius. I'm not saying it. I just realized I should have before we got on. I should have like looked at a couple, actually looked at a couple videos to see how people say it because I haven't heard the word in so long. <laughs> anyway, so this equation is like it basically helps you to determine how long something will last based on a couple of constants, or I'm sorry, coefficients. And in the case of talon polymer, the talon polymer materials. Arrhenius is a, based on the activation energy needed in order to cause a chemical change. And so the more activation energy that's required, the more time it will take to cause a chemical change. And so the my, my example here is talon polymer. The entire structure has been calculated to have a lifetime of about two to 3,000 years. Now, backing up, that's in the in that bathtub plot we talked about, you have the early life failures, which cause your uh, number of components or the, the failure rate to go down over time. And then while you're in your normal use life, it's practically zero. And then as components start to wear out, that time goes up. And so what this equation predicts is how long is that flat part of the curve? How, how long are you going to be sitting in that flat part of the curve? And so 
even, <laughs> even though you might have a talon polymer out in the field for 10 years, some material scientists would claim that that's still an early life failure because it wasn't, it was usually a manufacturing defect that causes those failures and not the actual breakdown or aging of the chemical composition. Basically, the environment did not cause it. Or the effect from the environment, it was, it, it caused a degradation in yeah. something that wasn't specific to the chemistry of the component. Yeah, so we need to be careful what we define as environment because part of that Arrhenius equation is temperature because temperature increases or adds energy into the into the equation. And so if you're in a uh, high um, elevated temperature, that will actually accelerate the wear out. And so now on a cosmic scale, it's probably not, yeah, I mean, until you get to a thousand degrees, but at that point, you're not worried about wear out any, well, <laughs> you're worried about wear out for, I don't know, three, 400 milliseconds. What I would say instead of the environment is I would say the circuit operation doesn't have an effect other than heat, right? And even then, if if you if you know it, what the rule of thumb is, something like every ten degrees halves the give you half the operational lifetime. And so, how many degrees do you have to get to before two thousand becomes a reasonable number? Two thousand years becomes a reasonable number. It's amazing that that what the uh, the ten degree C for halving is so prevalent because we're talking about electronics. It's the same thing with automotive, like mechanical devices too. Like oil life is every 10 C you half how much life you get out of that oil. It's, it's, that's kind of interesting that ratio kind of exists everywhere. Yeah, I actually want to, I'm, I'm looking at the Arrhenius equation now and I have a feeling it's related directly to that. Yeah, that must be what it is. It would not surprise me. And in, okay, so in relation to this equation, you, you had mentioned that there's some constants that we can hang our hat on, like the uh, uh, mm -hmm. universal gas constant. Boltzmann. Um, and Boltzmann's constant. But there's there's two factors inside there. One's called the pre-exponential factor, and the other's called no, no, the... Good. I, I want to back up on those constants, okay? Yeah. Because I've never heard of those before, those two constants before. Were those... Is that something that was calculated or those like empirically derived? Like someone just like back in like 17 whatever experimented for like 10 years and got the number. It's interesting looking I up mean, the history constants of- constants in general, right? Well, yeah, I always like knowing the history of the constants because some of them are like, yeah, we calculated out what this number is. And the other one, then the flip side is, no, a dude was in his basement for 20 years and figured out the number was this. <laughs> So which side are we at on this one? <laughs> I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if someone's written a book on constants before, but I, but I'm I'm I wouldn't be surprised if uh, uh, some consistency exists in measurements that someone found that they could extract from it and still end up with a particular curve that's just a scaled curve. And then, I don't know, I'm talking out my butt here, but I, but I would not be surprised if somebody found this uh, characteristic of the measurements that they're looking at and then said, hey, we have to measure that and do something with it. I'm struggling because this is one of those values that I just, I, I just go with it <laughs> because yeah. I remember hearing about it in school and it just sticks in my mind as one of those numbers that it's like, okay, there's a reason for it, so let's just move on. And what's shocking me is I, I had, I've never thought about anything either of you guys just said. 
right? It just, it's like, I, I've never questioned, well, as an adult, I haven't questioned why that number exists. Yeah, yeah. Especially in, in our physics and math classes, you just kind of say, okay, this is a nice, pretty package constant that I slap in front of my equation and I just know I need to put it there. So just go I, and do I it. I can hit the E key on my calculator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so back to the equation, there's two factors. The the pre-exponential factor is one is called, and the other is activation energy, where the activation energy in chemistry is the minimum amount of energy for a reaction to occur or to begin. And uh, I may be saying that incorrectly, but it, you know, uh, something along those lines. But both of those factors are not something I can just go to a capacitor data sheet and say, what's the pre-exponential factor or the activation factor of this part in order to calculate this equation? Yeah. And there, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the activation er energy. Part of the issue that you run into there is that, so that 2000 year number I gave you for polymer tantalums, that is only the anode structure that is covered in polymer. That doesn't cover any of the materials. Like there's a carbon layer, there's a there's sometimes a silver epoxy, there's a lead frame, and then there's the plastic epoxy that goes around it. None of those are included in that lifetime. And in fact, I know that the epoxy, the, the plastic epoxy by itself only has a expected life of about a hundred years. And so I think part of the why you can't just go find that in a data sheet is because it's like, well, this is part of an overall system. And if there, there's there's going, and like in the case of a polymer tantalum, I already know that the tantalum element or the, the, the capacitor element itself is the longest life aspect. But everything that connects it to the outside world is much less than that. Mm. Or, you know, even, even if it's even if it's 100 years less, well, I guess if it's 100 years less, it's only like 5%. But that's not the weak link. So even if we, even if you were given that number from a data sheet, does it really help you? Would you really be able to apply it in your in your design or your application? Well, yeah, they, and and that's that's sort of the difficulty of of how to approach this because you're correct. Would you be able to use it? But there's not even a repository of these values anywhere to find. They're very difficult to find. And in fact, some of the papers I've I've found just talking about standard thick film resistors showed that just some very slight variations in estimates for the activation energy, you can get orders of magnitude differences mm -hmm. in your aging effects. So uh, some of these equations or some of these values you put in end up being very sensitive to the overall result. Yeah, actually this, so it's funny you say that for the resistor paper because the, the, one, the capacitor paper I'm using, I didn't reread the entire thing, but I, I glanced through it before we got together and there's a paragraph that talks about the activation energy and it just there's just kind of a comment that says well we picked this value because it's a conservative number <laughs> it's like okay i'm not saying that that's not true let me go and also, get my dartboard <laughs> <laughs> because because you know even if you move the decimal point over you know, it's not like it just drops from 2000 to 200. It's, it's, it changes it quite a bit more than that. And so it's like, Hmm. So I, I've always struggled. Well, not always. When, when I was, when I was an application engineer, I always struggled with this, this kind of line of evaluation because a lot of people that read about reliability, they did want things like the activation energy of the, the component, 
And it's because they wanted to do these calculations to somehow determine what their ultimate lifetime or operational life would be. And, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know. There's so many factors that go into these, these equations that it's like, how how do you get useful data? Well, it's not just, there's a, did it, yeah, did it actually pass the, the EU law for how long devices need to last now? I, I know we were, that was in the works, but th- stuff like that where like, if there's a law that says your cell phone needs to last five years, then these equations become very important to make sure that 99.9% of your devices last that long, right? Because now you're, you can be held liable not, not to hit that. So I will make the argument that it is not as critical as you might think. <laughs> but the thing is, people, for I, me, like, the, it won't, might be not important for engineers because, you know, but it's important for, like, the bean counters to make sure that what they're, dis- like, in the lawyers, like, the lawyers say, like, let's say you're trying to get insurance for your company that builds stuff, mm-hmm. and they go, hey, you know, you're trying to get insurance for this. Can you prove that your device lasts that long? No. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> because, yeah. Next question. <laughs> so, okay. So, I let me let me make sure I'm I'm clear. I agree with what you're saying, and I understand and agree with. Okay, if the if if I, w- I wish it didn't take a government directive to say it needs to last this long. I really feel like this should be mm-hmm. a, the market should lead this. Right. Right. I really feel like. If I buy a phone that only lasts for two years and I pay a price, that I should be allowed to do that. You know, I don't want a phone that's four times thicker because they have to make the battery thicker so that it lasts a arbitrary amount yes. of uh, operational time. Building derating right? and stuff into the battery. Yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. But okay, so that's that's not the, that's not what we're that's not where we're going. We don't want to talk about that. But where where I want to the way where I'm trying to get to is. So it's, you can comply, I believe a device manufacturer can comply with these types of regulations or requirements. Mm -hmm. Maybe requirements are better. That way it's, it doesn't matter where it comes from, whether the consumer or whatever, without knowing some of these details, because part of the way that a component gets specified is based around how long the manufacturer knows it will last. And so while this, like the activation energy itself may not be available for you to go and put into a, a spreadsheet and then change the constants to be whatever you want them to be. <laughs> no, I was, Sorry, I was about to say, I can make this equation tell you anything you want. So, yeah. you know. Well, yeah. Well, well, especially if you just, you know, let's just make up a new constant, yeah, right. you know, Baldi's, Baldi's constant. You, you guys, that, that's one of the seven fundamental yes, constants. constants. You didn't know this that? will last so 15 I, I was years for sure. <laughs> Well, no, no, it, it definitely have to be Steven's constant because you can't call something Steve's constant, <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. That's fair enough. That's just not. So I, I was actually looking up when y'all were talking earlier about all these constants in here, and a lot of them are just empirically like they have to like measure because a lot of it's like substance based, basically, or like because it's all chemical based. So it's all empirical evidence and charting it all out and stuff. Because so if you're building a like this polymer, which is a brand new substrate, like never existed before. You really don't know. You kind of have to just test it and keep testing it until it fails to get those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If we need to come back to this line of questions that I, I'm okay with that or this this thread, but I want to take a, a tangent but relate it. 
and ask you guys, related, I'm going to use capacitors for the context. What does rated voltage for a capacitor mean? Rated voltage for me is the voltage that the capacitor, if it's under that, won't explode. Okay. I mean, yeah, I would, I, yeah, I would say any voltage up to the rated voltage is an acceptable functioning voltage. Anything above that, the manufacturer does not guarantee the life of the component. Okay. Now, how does rated voltage for a capacitor get determined? How, how does a manufacturer decide that this capacitor is 10 volts, rate it for 10 volts or 100 volts? So see, in the back room, they have an intern with a lab power supply and they hook it up and they slowly increase that knob until they hit that number that explodes. So the funny thing is that test is done, but that's the dielectric withstanding voltage. <laughs> Not the working voltage. Which is specified, which yeah. is also specified. But that also brings up this, actually, that's a really great point, Stephen. There's working voltage. There's dielectric withstanding voltage. There's some other voltage. I don't know. Probably. Yeah, there's Usually there's like a transient spike voltage in there somewhere. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the reality is how the numbers actually get determined, it all varies by capacitor dielectric type. So stuff, so the way that you figure it out, the way that you ultimately come up with the number for a, uh, an aluminum electrolytic is different than how you would do it for ceramic. However, the process to determine it is relative, is mostly the same. If you look in a capacitor data sheet and uh, I can give you guys a link or when the, the episode goes live, I can put it on the, uh, on the forum. If you look at, say, I'm, I'm going to use the Kemet data sheet for obvious reasons. In the qualification section, they'll tell you the qualification test they used for the capacitor. So in the case of like a ceramic, they will test the capacitor at twice the intended rated voltage at its rated temperature for some amount of hours. And for like commercial stuff, it's usually like a thousand hours. And then they will measure the, well, they measure the capacitor before and after, and they've come up with some, the, some variance that means that the capacitor is okay. And so generally it's like, you don't want the leakage to change too much because if leakage changes, then you know your dielectric's been damaged. And so where this kind of comes in is all of this stuff ends up being kind of getting back calculated. So in order to achieve that qualification, the dielectric thickness is designed before they go into manufacturing. And so they say, okay, if we make it X microns thick, then we know we'll pass this qualification test at this voltage. And the reason I wanted to go down this path is because in order to do that, they have to do it based on the activation energy of the dielectric. And so that number that is maybe not readily available to us is used to determine the design for the cap so that they can hit this rated voltage for a rated amount of time. Because like everything we're, we're talking about today comes down to time, right? And so I also don't want it to get missed that these are almost always done at accelerated temperatures because what what does you know what's higher temperature give you? It gives you more energy to cause these reactions to happen faster. And so that's why I was trying to make the point that yeah, so if you want to know how long a component's going to last, that data is available from a manufacturer. Maybe it's not in the data sheet, but they actually have to know that in order to design their parts to ultimately pass the whatever qualification they come up with. And usually that's published. Hmm. So, so it's kind of buried in there if you kind of know where to look in a way. It is. And it's, it's sort of like all things, you know, it's like, it'd be really easy to be naive and say, oh, so they just make it 10 microns, measure it, and then say, okay, it's a five volt capacitor. Right. And sort of like what Parker was saying earlier is, 
yeah, maybe that's how it started out, right? Maybe they, they made a whole bunch of different thicknesses, did a whole bunch of tests to come up with to determine what the activation energy of this material is. I don't, I don't know if that's actually what they do. I'm just throwing that out. You know, it's, you, you empirically figure out how is this material going to perform? And then that gets, excuse the pun, baked into the, uh, the final, you know, the final number. And by the way, I, I just want to point this out. So like ceramic commercial parts are a thousand hours. That is not the same as an aluminum electrolytic that is rated for say a thousand hours of operation. So an aluminum electrolytic, if, if you go and buy an electrolytic, they'll say they usually come with a rate at lifetime, and that's at rate at voltage, rate at temperature. And those parts are guaranteed for that amount of time to not parametrically fail because you're wearing them out because they, they have a very fast wear out relative to well, a ceramic. Or at least the data sheet will so, tell you how the parametrics change during that time. Yeah, that's the other, you know, you might be able to predict and, and deal with it. It's just, I only wanted to mention that because, and it may actually end up confusing people more than helping, but this was a, a point that I would very often run into with buyers is they would say, well, your qualification test for this, this multi-layer ceramic is only a thousand hours. This aluminum electrolytic is 10,000 hours. It's like, well, no, that's not the qualification test. That's the, the rated operational life. The rated operational life of the ceramic if you knew the activation energy. <laughs> it's like they should just put that in data sheet now. <laughs> well, you know, actually, okay, you, you say that, but you know, the problem with it is how do you, how do yeah. you prove it? Right. Like, you know, at least with the qualification test, I can prove how does, how much does it shift over a thousand hours that, you know, come back to me in a month and I'll tell you. You know, if I if I tell you, well, it takes a hundred years for this material to break down, how, you can't apply enough heat to do it fast enough and still have a part left over. <laughs> yeah, actually, I saw um, there's there's a company called State of the Art, I think State of the Art Resistors that does mil spec and space grade resistors, um, and and in a paper I saw mm -hmm. they they actually had honest to god long life testing where they had tested some resistors at elevated temperatures for where where the input t was in years so like 10 years of data yeah. and they're <laughs> like okay here is uh activation energy for this one particular lot of one resistor that we mm -hmm. made a decade mm -hmm. ago there you go and so like it's sure great now we have a data point but you know have things changed from them do we manufacture in a different way are the materials slightly different i'm imagining yeah. that's like you know how like 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 wine and whiskey they store it and age it for a long time this company is doing the same thing but with reels of resistors where <laughs> barrel they, they, made, resistors. <laughs> they make a batch start testing it and then they put the resistors and oak barrels and store them in a cave and then in 10 years they have all their data and they go okay we can sell this now because it's Got all, all these qualifications yeah. now. $500 a piece for 04 <laughs> two resistors. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, so there, there are a couple of things I want to, I want to talk about in there. So those, those kind of long-term testing in the high rail application space is not completely unheard of. And it's for a couple of reasons. One is the, we want to verify after 10 years, what happens, right? Can we, can we prove what the long-term life of this material set will be. And something to realize is anything written to a mill spec or mill pref or mill PRF. So, or sometimes are called military drawings, anything that's written to one of these military specifications, at least 
well, I'll say U.S. and Europe, depending on the agency, but let's just say U.S. net for now, just to, to make it clean. Those don't really change very often. So, for example, ceramic capacitors for almost 40 years now, it took over 30 years before there was a mill prep for base metal electrode capacitors, uh, ceramic capacitors that were viable for space. And so literally, like, so back when I was, so let's say 2015, the biggest capacitor you could get to go into space at 50 volts was like 400 nanofarads. There, there wasn't another option because the material set hadn't changed for mm -hmm. 30 years. And so like this company that's doing the resistor testing, part of it, 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 we laugh about it. It's like, well, things have changed. Well, the manufacturing process might've improved over time because that changes and the material, raw materials themselves might've changed, but the core recipe probably hasn't changed during that lifetime testing. So at the end, the data is very valid. But the other and probably less obvious thing is keep in mind that a lot of these components are going into programs that last 20 or 30 years. And so you know, one of the things I remember talking to a um, aerospace defense customer was they had an inventory of devices and they needed to know when would the capacitors need to be re replaced because they've been sitting in a, in a bunker for two decades. So what's going to happen when they apply power, right? Yeah, they're like right next to the arc in Area 51. Yeah, well, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I don't remember if I told you guys this joke when one time we talked about caps, but my favorite my favorite aerospace defense customer ever asked me what the shock and vibrating of a certain capacitor was. And I said, well, I don't know what the number is, but I know that downhole customers put it into a jackhammer, a box that connected to a jackhammer and run that for 30 minutes or until the jackhammer breaks. And if the capacitors survive, they know that it'll work in their application. And he, the guy chuckles and goes, no, son, you don't understand. I need to know how well it'll work after one very big shock. <laughs> <laughs> and if it will last for about 30 seconds. And mm. I was like, oh, mm. oh, <laughs> I misunderstood. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So, you know, in those cases, they just need to understand this aging thing. Man, this kind of goes back to that very first question. You know, from their perspective, they need to know, does the, how is the aging going to affect the circuit when we turn it on after a decade? Right. And it's not even a case of they're worried that it's going to fail. They just need to know, will it fail? Right. It's not. It, yeah, so they know it, when to cycle it out. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Because those are applications that do turn out that, you know, you when you hit go, they're supposed to go. Right. It's it's <laughs> there is no. Well, we'll do it later. Yeah, actually, as an example, I, I spoke to someone not that long ago who in a previous life had designed some military applications. And he said, for the thing that I designed, I have no idea where in the world it's going. It might sit in a warehouse outside for 20 years and get hot and cold and hot and cold. And then the second the military needs it, it better work. And how do you, yeah. how do you like, how do you design that and be hundred percent certain on that? And so, okay. I know you, that was maybe more rhetorical, but this does actually represent the difference between, you know, if you're designing something, even if you consider like, say, a medical application where reliability is really important, you know, in a aerospace defense application, reliability means something completely different because it's 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 very often a case like that is it's going to get subject to harsh environment and then it has to work. And so and the Marines have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you. you <laughs> <laughs> We have a couple of Marines that work in hearing their uh, stories is how they treat equipment's pretty good. So, <laughs> yeah. 
I want to be careful because, because one time I, uh, I got done talking to a, a cust like doing a lunch learn and the customer came up to me and said, so according to you, everything I ever designed was wrong. All the capacitors are cracked and everything's going to fail. <laughs> well, like, well, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Well, it's like, I, okay, I understand how you got there <laughs> because those were the things I said. <laughs> Something I want to point out is while the, a lot of this information that you might need to do these calculations is not in a data sheet that is published on a website. If uh, you're working with a tier one component manufacturer, somebody in the, within the company has access to the data to do these types of calculations. And so like, I think the reason I forgot the name of the resistor company, but like the resistor company doing the 10 year test, right? They'll have that data for the customers that need it. They may not publish it. They probably, you know, do a paper or something, but they're not, they may not put something in the data sheet. And the reality is you don't need that level of data because things like the qualification test already give you a really good starting point for how long is this component going to last under these conditions. And so, so I just want to just, you know, so that people aren't thinking I'm trying to say that, well, it's impossible to figure this stuff out. No, it is possible. The data is there. It's just not something that fundamentally the problem is if you give out people this raw data, they're going to misuse it. And then that's going to cause other issues. Can you imagine the the uh, field applications engineer a customer calls him up and like I'm imagining like that scene from what's this it's what show is it where like the guy is like the conspiracy theorist and he has his hand up on like the wall with oh, all the pictures sunny in Philadelphia yeah that but it's like a spreadsheet with all these constants <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> well like I was saying like a small change in a value could result in differences of years of reliability in your final calculation and that can scare the customer a lot so it, it, I, I can totally understand yep. that even if you're trained in this kind of stuff it's you can can very easily abuse it. Well, and and yeah, actually, yeah, that's, uh, I'll just kind of dovetail on that one is, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these numbers that you get also have some assumptions that are baked in that maybe don't apply in a application, right? And that's where you can really get, really get messed up because, you know, it's like, well, under these conditions, no, this, this, this activation energy changes or the profile changes or something like that. Uh, one of you said something about a component changing and that changes reliability. This is a tangent, but I wanted to bring this up because I was surprised to learn this when, when I was at the component company. So have you ever heard of people saying, well, for our project, we're going to buy automotive grade parts because they're higher quality? All the time. Mm -hmm. 100% all the time I hear that. Yeah, actually, I'll bet I'll bet at, at Macrofab you hear that almost very often. Almost every especially day. Especially... I, like yeah. it's shocking how yeah. often that that what what is it uh a a c a e c yeah q two hundred yep the automotive yeah so q two hundred is for passive components and so uh, resistors something else and <laughs> crystals the capacitors <laughs> and then q one hundred covers active devices so fun fact so a e c is the automotive I don't know what the E is. Yeah, I should know that because I deal with them every day. Automotive, <laughs> it's Automotive Reliability Council, but it's AEC. I guess they didn't want to be called what ARC. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Wow. Um, oh, Automotive Electronics Council. That's what it is. Oh, 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 okay, okay. You know what? I made up the name. That's why. I, I was thinking it was the Reliability Council. Yeah, okay. Okay, so AEC, fun fact, 
they they basically come up with, I'm just going to call it qualification plans for components that go into cars. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But the funny thing to me is the number one application for relays, for power relays, is um, automotive cars. And the AEC does not have a qualification plan for relays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like the one component they don't have a qualification plan for. And I, I never got a good answer I, on why. I have some empirical evidence for that stuff is relays just i think what is uh, relays either fail really early or they just basically will never fail it, if they're it, within the specs well, that are they're labeled for sure and that might be yeah, why I, just, man the mechanical devices just like to fail early and maybe and maybe part of it is now actually that was probably the key word is because it's an electromechanical device maybe the automotive electrical council doesn't cover them maybe there's the an amc you know it's well and that, now that i've said that maybe i remember somebody saying something like that but we were probably out after dinner and so i'm not going to remember <laughs> what they said so what i wanted to bring up here is so the aec q200 let's talk about caps since, since i know that one so earlier i talked about the qualification plan for a commercial ceramic from one vendor and their their qualification test so the q200 is basically a document that multiple automotive manufacturers got together and agreed that components that we buy must pass this qualification plan and once they do you cannot change the materials or process without requalifying them and so i think this is really important because if you look at most so for passive components their qualification plans for the commercial products almost always follow the automotive, the, the Q2 point. If at the very least, it's going to be the starting point. Now, when you start to get to say the tail end of the components, so if you're talking about like an 0402 100 microfarad capacitor, that will never pass anything in the Q200. And so that part will have a different qualification plan than the Q200 because it's not possible mm. to pass their test. And so this myth that, Q200 qualified parts or Q100 qualified parts are higher quality is a little bit unearned because the parts all have the same basic materials and they go through the same basic production process as commercial products. And in some cases, the qualification tests for the two are the same. But the difference is, and this was a subtle thing I said a second ago, is if the manufacturer makes any change, they have to requalify the part. And so when you buy a automotive grade part or something that passed one of the Q the Q100 Q200 you're basically buying a guarantee that the part has changed minimally over it's changed minimally minimally since you started buying it. So like, you know, say like a car, you qualify a car's design and then 3 years later it goes into manufacturing or into production you want to know that your components haven't changed, like the material sets haven't changed because that ultimately changes the reliability of the part. And so that's what the automotive grade or Q200, Q100 provides you. The reality is quality wise, in terms of component failures, in most cases, it's not drastically different because it's they're built on the same, same lines, same machines, same materials. It's just that you know, maybe you push the process a little bit for commercial grade parts. Well, I've actually read through a chunk of the AEC documentation and compared it to some higher grade things. And what's interesting is a lot of the qualification mm -hmm. tests are actually very similar, if not the exact same military standard 
that gets applied to them. So in 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 a lot of the, I shouldn't say a lot, in some of the tests, the they one actually document do, you read. <laughs> well, no, I mean I I have the official AEC document, uh, but but uh, but some of the tests are identical to space grade, but in some or in a lot of the mm-hmm. situations, it's you know in space grade maybe you have to test forty units, and in AEC you're testing five or or something uh, of that sort. Right. And a sizable portion of the AEC documentation is actually instructions on how to let customers know that you're making a change to your process. So, so yeah, uh, it doesn't necessarily guarantee reliability, but it does give you the, I guess, warm and fuzzies that you know where your part was manufactured. And then at one point in time, it has passed yep. some military standards. Yeah, actually, that's, in fact, uh, there's a lot, I won't say a lot. There are military programs that have, they started using automotive or stuff that passed Q200 for that reason mm-hmm. is it's like, okay, you're in, in the big difference. And I know, I, I know for uh, capacitors, this was the case. I don't know about active parts, but like the, the major difference between like, okay, so both are using the same test mm-hmm. procedure, but the material set is different. And so like, uh, so some aerospace defense programs liked Q200 qualified parts because they knew that they were getting a reasonably priced part because it used commercial material sets, but it was tested to a standard that they were comfortable with. Right, something that they already knew at least what was happening mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And and it's and, yeah. and and when it comes to space grade stuff, you can basically say look at the military standard, they're picking the most strenuous test. Uh, the automotive stuff, look at that same standard and they're picking the least strenuous test. Yeah, that's actually yeah, I you know, if you kind of if we kind of built up the uh, like a, a pyramid, right? You've got commercial, and then automotive or uh, AEC qualified, and then you'll have uh, mill drawing, which are generally strict documents, but they're not. They have some wiggle room on how you might specify things, and then you have the actual mill prefs, which are nope. This is exactly how you have to do it. And as you get higher in that pyramid, there's fewer parts available, but their their reliability tends to go up. Right even though I said a minute ago, commercial and automotive are the same. Well, okay. The the difference between commercial and automotive is knowledge in a lot of situations. With automotive, you can trace a bit more than you can with commercial. With commercial, you get the least amount of information. That doesn't mean that the tests weren't complete. Yep. You just don't always know. Yeah. And and you also get the widest amount of parts available. And so that's why, again, you know, where I, if, if you use like for like comparison, if you say, 100 nanofarad, 50 volt X7R in both commercial and automotive grade, I would imagine the re- the reliability data is the same on them or nearly the same. But if you looked at a 50 volt one mic part in commercial, they may not be available as an auto qualified part. And so that's where that, that's why it's like, okay, well, you know, you might say, well, we're not going to use that part because it's not considered as reliable. There, there's a reason it's not auto, auto qualified. Just, and as you go up that pyramid, that always applies. That's why you end up with fewer and fewer parts available. So one other thing I wanted to mention actually about um, parts aging that I found really interesting in my studies actually had to do with precision of your components that you're, you're picking. And specifically in terms of resistors, I read a paper on this that made it seem kind of not dire, but it's like, oh, how do we get around this? And in relation to what we mentioned earlier with 
uh, the construction of components. So let's say we're, we're, we're taking a resistor and we're, we need a really high precision resistor, 0.00001%, whatever, and we're willing to spend a bazillion dollars mm-hmm. on it. A lot of times that has comes down to how it's manufactured, maybe lasered or whatever. That doesn't necessarily yep. apply to the component aging aspect of it. So you may be purchasing or spending a ton of money for initial precision on that. (laughs) And over years, it may drift a full percent or two. And so your precision that you spent all that money for is lost because the drift isn't uh, a part of the manufacturing process. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, yeah, especially like if I think about a laser trim resistor, right? If you, if you trim off part of the material, the rest of the material still has the same drift coefficient associated, right? I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that's a, you know, that that's a good point because that comes back to those, okay, aging, yeah, aging leads to wear out, but aging, especially with passive components, is drift. You know, uh, just, to, just to give an, an anecdote, anecdotal evidence. So when I was dealing with tantalum, or not tantalum, when I was dealing with regular tantalum capacitors failing, people had this misconception that their reliability failed over time because it was like, they, I would hear, well, this has been in the field for 10, 15 years. So why are they just now failing? What could, what could it be? And I remember in one application, we figured out that the resistors that were used in the feedback network for the, the buck regulator or the boost or for the, uh, the switching regulator drifted and they drifted enough to cause the capacitor to see a voltage it had never seen before and that led to the failure and you know in that case they were so focused on the reason they used talon was because they didn't want those ceramics to drift or age that they totally ignored the the resistors in the feedback network and it's like well so there there's an example of a failure that was due to aging but had nothing to do with material defect or the component mm. itself though that failed yeah 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 I think in a lot of ways, what what all of this component aging boils down to is it's uh, it's difficult to calculate, and even if you feel confident with your values, it may not necessarily reflect reality to a high level of accuracy, and so that's how we kind of boil down to rules of thumb, like we were mentioning earlier. A ten degree C rise results in a half or having of life of component. And and in many ways, I think that's where a lot of these equations become useful. Say something like with resistors over a 10 year span, you can expect the tolerance to open to an extra 2%. So you bought your 1% resistor after 10 years, consider it a 3% resistor. And, And that's where these become really useful in your initial simulations or your analysis of your circuits. I was actually, we had the CEO of JTEX on if you know about them, James, it's like soft. It's like software-defined so. schematics. Oh, is this? Yes, yes, yes. This was. Uh, this was just a couple couple episodes. Ago, yeah, right? yeah, four or five episodes. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. what I'm yeah, thinking I now. Yeah, is, I was really fascinated by that one. Yeah, yeah, and like we're talking about simulations, and and like if you could put your wear into this model, which now now you're getting to like. <laughs> Now you can go, oh, my expected lifespan is 10 years in deep space or probably even longer, actually, because you wouldn't even get out. You probably wouldn't get out to, you know, Jupiter by then. Anyways, you could plunge that stuff in and do that. That That's kind of interesting of a, of a concept. I, I think it's better to, instead of saying, I expect this much lifespan, 
instead of saying it that way, say after X amount of years, I can expect that my components have have drifted within a boundary of this much. Is my circuit still functioning with those characteristics? Yeah, that's what I'm saying is you can design your circuit to be more robust to drift and then your device can last longer, which is always something I I try to push for. So uh, I'm going to give you guys, uh, I'm going to suggest something that gets you both what you're asking for. So I completely agree that when doing a simulation, if you have the ability to model drift for your components, you should. Remember, and from a capacitor perspective, you know, ceramics, they have an aging effect. They lose capacitance over time. Now, it is not destructive because you can reset it, but you lose capacitance. Aluminum electrolytics, their ESR and um, their ESR will go up. Their uh, capacitance will go down over time. Any capacitor with a polymer will have uh, ESR will go up over time, uh, depending on how it's encased. And so those kinds of aging effects are usually in a data sheet or there is a conservative number that's available that for, I would imagine for most applications is suitable for you to determine 10, 20, 30 years from now, are we going to have a parametric failure in our, in our design? That is different than the wear out, the aging to wear out, because that's where you get into mean time between failure, right? And I think the general rule or school of thought is you take the mean time between fi- failure, sum of squares of all of the devices available, and then you come up with an estimation on how long until something could potentially fail. I think there's room for that simulation, which is probably going to be different from the drift simulation to be a lot more accurate, but I think there's a lot less data available to make that an accurate simulation. I think if this was easier, we would all know more about it already. <laughs> well, and yeah, and, and that's... <laughs> How, how do I how do I say this politely? Um, I, I, I attended a lot of reliability conference sessions, and there's a certain demographic for for these discussions. And the three of us are not in that demographic because I think this is one of those areas that requires, unfortunately, today requires a lot of tribal knowledge or or, or past experience in order to know how to correctly determine the data and use it mm. because it's so easy. It, I, I feel like it would be so easy to take any, a lot of the things we talked about and just go in the completely wrong direction and it'll feel great the entire time, right? You'll come up with a beautiful spreadsheet that determines that the parts you, or the, the device you just started shipping should fail sometime last week, right? I mean, it, <laughs> Or you need to spend thousands of dollars on all these components so that you can get to a 10-year lifetime when, yeah, I, I agree. It, it's A lot of this is, it's hard and it's unfortunate because here's three people that are struggling to understand how it all works, even though I think we, we all, I think we all get it, but it's like, how do we not know this stuff more naturally, right? Why, why, why don't we know Ohm's law for reliability? Oh, if only it was that easy. <laughs> so... James, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. I know we've changed our name since last time you were on, but thank you so much. And by the way, congratulations on the new name. I like it. I'm, I like what you guys are doing. I knew that I could rely on you for a uh, great I see episode. what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for having yeah, me. Thank you. And so where, <laughs> if, if people want to talk to you, James, where can they find you? I'm a very difficult person to find. I don't even know where you know. <laughs> I think the easiest thing is baldengineer.com. 
with the current state of social media channels, that's probably the easiest place to track me down. Or you can even find me in the Circuit Break forums. I like to, uh, you know, hang out there every once in a while. Yeah, that's uh, circuit-break.macrofab.com. Still don't have a shortener for it yet. Maybe like chat.macrofab.com. I don't know yet. I don't know if that's much better. <laughs> that's not much better. <laughs> How about this URL should be shorter.com slash. Yeah. I wonder if I can just get circuitbreak.com and just forward it to there. That might be the. Well, now you can. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. James is on like names.com right now. So, yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much, James. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. X us. We were talking about social media stuff. It still says tweet us in here at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. No one ever emails us. I just get spam. Anyways, or we also have our new Circuit Break community, which is circuit-break.macfab.com. James is there all the time uh, letting us know his thoughts. So that's it. Yeah.